basically was addicted to video games, failed out of college, and then went to India to find myself. I went to my teachers and I said, I'm ready to give up my life. They're like, you don't have a life worth giving up. You haven't done anything, you're just a failure. I need to learn surrender so that I can control my life. Stopping to make decisions in your life could be one of the best things you can do in your life. I mean, I, I don't think that the mind is actually that complicated. I think yeah. we just, the reason it's so complicated is because he was addicted to video games, depressed and hated his life. So he traveled to India to become a monk, then trained at Harvard as a psychiatrist to learn how to help himself and then give back and help others. Today, he works with top creators and co-founded a top mental health support company. Join us as he shares why self-help is a paradox, his path to enlightenment, and why sometimes you shouldn't try to make decisions. Please welcome Dr. K from HealthyGamer.gg. I'm here today with a special guest, Dr. K. You might know him through his work as HealthyGamer.gg, where he's helped over 2.5 million followers learn how to improve themselves and think and care about their mental health. He's also co-founder of HealthyGamer.gg, the company which provides creators and many individuals with mental health coaching and himself is a doctor and psychiatrist who over the years has become, I think, one of the most prominent creators and evangelists in the space hmm. where, you know, many of my friends, including myself, the hardest thing is just being willing and open to try therapy in the first place. And that's really what your work as a creator has done. So first of all, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you very much for having me, Eric. It's, yeah. It's an honor, man. One of the things that I always remember learning about you that blew my mind is well before you became a doctor and psychiatrist, you were a video game addict and a monk. Yeah, so in that order. So um, started out playing a bunch of video games, basically was addicted to video games, failed out of college, and then went to India to find myself and decided to become a monk. And that was my path for about seven years or so. Met my wife, fell in love, all that good stuff. And so she wanted to be married to a doctor so I went to med school, ended up becoming a psych psychiatrist. She wanted a neurosurgeon, kind of the same organ. I think but. both <laughs> regarding the brain. And I would say most recent studies show that the mind and the brain are kind of one of the same in many ways. Yeah, I think that, that, that there's an ongoing debate about what's the connection between the brain and the mind. Mm. I kind of view them as somewhat separate organs. Um, I don't think there's a one to, I personally don't think that there's a one-to-one -one correlation between yeah. mind and brain. You know, a lot of like very like physical biology oriented people will think that the mind is simply uh, a construction, an abstract construction or a subjective experience of electrical activity in the brain. When I was in school, I studied psychology and that's exactly the framing that professors shared with me. Your mind is but a lagging after image, a conscious story and illusion that the neurons firing your brain tell yourself, but really activities happening below and behind. And I actually felt very sad upon hearing that. That's definitely a common view. Yeah. And I think over the last, I would say not, not five years, but let's say like the 30 years before that, between the 1990s and like 2015, there was a very, very biology focused yes. understanding. There was an explosion of neuroscientific tools basically, where we had like the ability to like study the brain in ways that we had never had before. And so as we learned more and more about the brain, we started to realize that, okay, like mental constructions can be mapped onto the brain. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people started to think that, okay, so like the brain is the mind and they're one and the same. 
But I think there's actually a lot of very promising research mm. that actually suggests that consciousnesses may have more to do than just electrical activity in the brain. I didn't know that. And I find that truly relieving because upon learning for assistance school, my immediate thought was excellent. So my conscious mind has no agency and is merely the output of reactions happening on a level I can't even perceive. Yeah. So I, I think some people will believe that. So mm -hmm. some people will believe in sort of biological determinism where your thoughts and your, you know, that, that you really have no control and that mm -hmm. control is a subjective illusion, basically. Mm -hmm. I think if you kind of study your own experience, I would say that the majority of human beings would agree that we have some control. Now, maybe it's right. a shared delusion across all of humanity, but I think that's the kind of thing where if you're really a scientist about it and everyone makes this observation, you can do some mental gymnastics to move away from that observation and say, oh yeah, that's all in your head. You're making it up. But like our experience of that is not like that. So I, I do a lot of addiction psychiatry work Yeah, and helping people understand that they have some degree over of control mm -hmm. over their life is functionally very useful. So clinical outcomes all come from empowerment. Yeah. So when an addict sort of recognizes what they can and can't control, I think that's when people get better. So I think even from a functional standpoint, sort of acknowledging that human beings have some degree of free will is very helpful. It's funny you mentioned from a clinical perspective, I did go through a little bit of an existential, oh gosh, I have no agency and life was terrible. And so the mental gymnastics, or maybe the correct framing I performed internally to feel good about it again, I convinced myself, even if, and now I'm understanding this assumption itself might not be correct, even if my conscious mind is but a lagging after image my unconscious, well, you know, my unconscious is still me and unconscious Eric is still potentially making choices and following up on those actions, even if on a conscious level, I don't perceive it. And that's what I have continued to believe and serve me well up until today. Although it sounds like probably I should reconsider because there's seems like a stronger element of the mind and conscious agency than I had learned before. What's your experience? Like, do you think you have control over yourself or your life in any way? I used to. And weirdly, thinking that potentially I might not be in fully control helped me a lot. Because when I believed everything was operating as a consequence of the choices that I made, whenever I do something, the outcome wasn't what I expected. Because of course, there are variables outside my control. I'd punish myself severely. I would feel really bad. And learning that, well, you know, maybe consciously I'm not as in control as I'd like, it actually gave me a lot of relief because then I could tell myself, maybe that's the decision I always would have made. Yeah. I, I think that's a really important distinction. So I, I think that understanding, so I think people get screwed in two different ways. This is also based on clinical experience mostly. One is when you try to control things that are outside of your control. Mm. So a really good example of this is like relationships. How do I keep this person from breaking up with me? Mm. How do I stay in this relationship? How can, can I convince them to stay? And fundamentally trying to exert your will on another human being, mm -hmm. which usually ends bad. So even if you succeed, you kind of enter this sort of manipulative dynamic. And if you fail, you kind of feel like, you know, this person, you've, you've done something wrong. This sort of idea that, okay, if I had done better, if I had been nicer, if I had been more kind, um, 
you know, if I'd given more, more of what this person wanted, then they yeah. would have stayed. But fundamentally, you like can't control another human being. And so I, I see when people over invest in what their power is, or they think what their power is, that leads to bad outcomes. And then I also see problems on the flip side. So when people think that, oh, I'm just a victim of my circumstances, um, you know, there's nothing I could have done. My boss hates me or this person dislikes me or whatever. And that can be true. Yeah. And yet oftentimes what I find is when you blame other people for your circumstances, there's some mm. truth to that, but there's some agency that you're actually giving up and you're surrendering some degree of power. And so I think the, the beautiful place is somewhere in the middle mm. where you kind of acknowledge, okay, there's some stuff that I do control and there's some stuff that's like actually out of my control. You were really addicted to video games. What was your perspective then in terms of your own agency and your own actions in the world around it? Was it different or was it always been something similar to what you believe now? My perception was that I had very, very little agency and I didn't understand why. So I couldn't, I didn't feel like I could control it and I wanted to control it and I wanted to stop and I didn't even understand like why I couldn't control it. Like that was the really confusing thing. So like, I was like, okay, I've failed out of college in like 2001 to give you all some. So this was like back before games were really that addictive. So I, I think they've become a lot more intentionally addictive by developers and games don't end. Like back in, you know, 2001 games ended. You beat the game and then you were done with the game, mm -hmm. presumably. So this was like kind of in the infancy of like online gaming and stuff like that. So what was really confusing to me is like, I understood, okay, like people are addicted to or alcohol and this is like a biological substance that is addictive but i didn't really understand like why i couldn't stop playing a game and so there was a lot of self-blame right so i was like mm. I, I felt stupid for being in this situation and not being able to control it and then waking up like i would vow to myself okay like tomorrow i'm gonna wake up on time but i was so i would say like internally blind that i was like i was like a leaf in in a white water river, you know, like I, I was getting, getting tossed around through life. I didn't understand what I was feeling. I didn't really understand like where habits came from. I didn't understand what controlled my behaviors. Mm -hmm. And the reason I became a monk is because, so I remember like sleeping through my Spanish final, yeah, <laughs> which is a, a next level of degeneracy, like not even showing up for the final. And I remember waking up and then deciding to skip it actually, and then going back to sleep. And so I remember like, being super confused about, okay, why is it on one day if I set my alarm clock, I can get up and get out of bed and actually go to class. But then the next day I can't, like, I just didn't understand that variance. Yeah. And what I loved about India is I, I found a group of people who could teach me how I worked. So why is it that you can't wake up on one day and you can wake up on another? Why is it that human beings struggle with consistency and where does consistency come from? Where does discipline come from? Where does motivation come from? Because in psychology, we'll teach general principles Right? If you take a Psych 101 class, you'll learn about Pavlovian conditioning, but you mm -hmm. won't learn about how you can wake up every single day. And that's really what the meditative tradition and, and yoga and, and stuff is about, is about like understanding, like a complete scientific understanding of the self. I really love that too, because to your point, I felt so much of the theory I learned in school was interesting, and yet I would not change my own actions and behaviors. Yeah, so I think there's a fundamental problem, which is that information does not create behavioral change. So you can tell someone, hey, if you don't stop smoking, you're going to get lung cancer. And paradoxically, even doing that may actually worsen their smoking. And that's because if you tell someone they're going to feel guilty, they're going to feel bad, they're going to feel stupid, and then evoking those reactions within someone 
will actually cause them to use substances more because that's what they use substances to get away from. What that's was kind of prompting that decision for you to travel to India and become a monk? Like on this concept of agency, that's a really big decision that you chose to make. That I would say 99.9% of people, if I'm being honest, I felt very similarly throughout most of my life, even proceeding to college. I did not miss any finals, but I was always that guy who would run 30 minutes late in my pajamas and be doing that walk of shame to the front to grab my pamphlet. And everyone's looking at me like, what, what the f is this guy doing? I did fail out of a class in my sophomore year. And, you know, bad things really were happening. And so I'm so curious, though, like for you, what what was that realization where you're like, I'm actually going to make a huge life change and why like become a monk? Yeah. So I think the interesting thing is I, I don't think it was a decision. I think for the first time in my life, I stopped making decisions. My whole life, I had been trying to control my destiny. So I was like an Indian kid, the child of two doctors and what every Indian and I'm sure Asian kid wants if you grow up in, in America is, I mean, now it's probably, there's a little bit more variety, but it's become a doctor and go to Harvard. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to be number one. Which by the way, both of us went through Harvard in a yeah, way. So. The irony. Yes. Um, and, and so I, I really strive for that. Like I remember being 15 or 16 and like being at a Christmas party in my town. I grew up in a small town in Texas at people asking me like, Oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, I want to be a doctor. And they were really impressed by that. They were like, wow. And so I, I, something weird happened. I got like a, this ego stroking gratification from saying I was going to be a big somebody one day. And so I, I got all this reward without anything. And then, so I was like, okay, like this is what I want. It's not really what I wanted. I didn't really want it. It's what impressed people and it's what made me feel good. I majored in pre-med, but didn't really care about it. And so I, I was trying to like make decisions in life and they were just turning out bad. So I was talking to my dad and dad's, my dad said he tried everything. This was two years in. I was like basically kicked out of college. And he said, you know, he'd tried tough love, kind love. My mom had tried what she knew how to do. And so he was like, you have to go to India. You know, I, I don't know what else we've got. And I was like, okay. And I, I remember it was like a conversation at two in the morning where we'd try, we'd talk through like what, you know, no, none of us knew what was going on, but he's like, you just need to go. And then I asked him, like, what am, you know, what's that, what am I going to learn? He's like, I don't know. Or he said something. I don't, it wasn't very clear. So I think that was actually the first time in my life where I, like, surrendered. So there was someone telling me to do something, and I just said, okay, and trusted them, as opposed to actually making a life change. I, I didn't, I mean, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I didn't, I was so just you, like. You got in the plane, you were in India. Had your parents previously set up? relations or connections for you to go meet or was it very much like you're on your own go figure it out uh so no i i there was some connections and i was kind of on my own so i i'd been to india several times but like visited like family and stuff right so it's kind of like going back to the home country so i was in a completely different part of india didn't speak the language um and i remember like my first experience there was i got picked up from the airport and even then like the person who picked me up from the airport like i'm not sure it was the right person so they didn't have a sign or anything it's just everyone at the airport left and there was one dude who was waiting for someone and like I was the last person waiting. So I just walked up to this guy and I was like, are you here to pick up, you know, I, I'm Alok. And, and the dude didn't speak English and he didn't understand what I was saying. And he just like nodded and he just gestured. And so I just like, he grabbed my bag and we got in this car and then it was like 1230 at night. And then we were in, in the car for probably about two hours and we drove out into the wilderness. There was no power. 
So I couldn't see where I was going. And mm -hmm. so they like kind of, you know, someone came with a flashlight and they like showed me to a room and I, I'm still not clear. And actually at that point was I met someone who spoke English and they're like, yeah, yeah you're in the right place. But I didn't know. I just like, like this literally could have been a random man taking you to a random ran place. Random man, random place. I, there's, and this is like out in the wilderness in India. So if there's like the power was out, so you like can't see anything. So I didn't know where, I didn't know if this was like a house or like a compound or like a 10 story skyscraper. Like I couldn't tell where I was. I go to sleep. I, I get to my room around two 30 or three o'clock. I brush my teeth. I change my clothes. Um, they give me a candle and then I go to sleep and then like my head hits the pillow. I pass out and then I hear this bell. And then I'm like super confused. There's like this bell ringing. I look outside and there's, there's a, I, the moon's still up. And then I walk outside and I'm like, what, what's going on? Is this like a fire drill or like, yeah. it's clearly night outside. There's stars and, and stuff like that. Someone's just ringing this bell and I'm like confused. And then I, I hear people are waking up and okay, I guess everyone's getting up. And then, so I go ahead and get ready. I get changed. And then I step outside and I hear, Ugh. I'm like, what the hell was that? And then I hear, Ugh. And then I hear like a lot of that noise. And then I walk out out of this little compound and then I see that there's like a row of people who are like vomiting into a ditch. Oh God. And there's people like behind them, like rubbing their back. And I'm like, holy, where am I? Have I like walked into the plague? This is some third like world. Exorcism going on over here. Yeah, or just some kind of outbreak of something. I'm like, oh shit, I'm gonna die. And it turns out this is like a very ancient classic yoga practice called Vamantoti where you ingest a bun bunch of isotonic water and then you kind of like vomit and then you, it kind of cleans out your like GI system and it cleans out your, your like upper respiratory tract and stuff like that. It's kind of weird. I haven't seen really good studies on, on how effective it is, but, and so I was just in this completely different world and it was really scary. I love how you both can share the lived experience of waking up, not knowing where we are and just seeing people puking in a row combined with, oh, now I actually understand it's a yoga practice. And now the clinical, well, it's an isotonic solution. Studies <laughs> yeah. have debated its efficacy. Yeah. I think it's, it's something that's hard to study, but you know, there's, there's, you know, it's not, I don't think it's unsafe. Well, what I love, especially is the combination. And I think this is why people watch you of here's my personal experience. Here's the monk teachings. And here I can also analyze, analyze this from a Western perspective. Yeah, I, th I think that there's a lot of practices in yoga and meditation, especially that are very powerful, but are not detectable by science in a very easy way. So the simplest example is if you look at like tantric practice or tantric practice. So these are like, usually you're initiated by a guru who's like, and, and I mean, these people are hard to find, like you're not going to find them on the internet. Um, and the, the problem is that if you look at like a study of meditation, the level of consciousness that you're at when you do the practice makes a big difference. The problem is you can't study that, right? So, so what happens is they'll take 20 people, they'll teach them a technique. And if you sort of think about like ancient Zen monasteries, mm. you know, you would spend 30 years studying to become a Zen master. And at the end of those 30 years, some people haven't gotten it yet. Mm. So there's, there's a very different, big difference in quality of practice. And what we measure in the, in the West is really just re repetition of the yeah. action. And you don't know the quality of what's going on in someone's mind. I love the concept. It's the very mechanisms we use to determine validity. The very ways of measurement actually fail to capture something more individualized that requires more subjectivity. And Absolutely. Person. I mean, I think it's a, it's a problem that's very, very rife in medicine, in content creation, 
um, there's just all kinds of problems with the way that we measure things and what kind of data we collect and how that correlates or doesn't correlate to successful performance. And to me, it also ties to this concept. You mentioned for the first time in your life, you weren't trying to control everything. You were almost having decisions made for you, not only in your parents seeing you to go to India, but you got in this guy's transportation because he was the only one left. The decision was made for you. And I sort of see in my head precisely when you don't have, oh, the 15 different variables of data and instrumentation to know if I do this, this will happen and I will control and I will set up this environment. You almost just have to trust in what's going to occur because intuitively it could work, but you don't necessarily know. You're here in India, you're coming out, these people are puking. I'm going to assume, you know, the first thing you did wasn't just like go home in a weird way. You're like, I'm going to trust in this and see where it takes me. You stopping to make decisions in your life could be one of the best things you can do in your life. There's a really interesting example of this, which is retail trading. So when like Robinhood and some of these apps came out, there were some people who realized that the average person is stupid at buying stocks. And so their trading strategy is if these idiot retail trader, traders who are using Robinhood, if they make any trade, I'm gonna be on the opposite side of it. I don't care what it is. I'm just betting against people's stupidity and the likelihood that they will make bad decisions in the stock market. And people made a ton of money using that strategy. And so it's, they're just betting against people's ability to make decisions for themselves. And so in the same way, I think one of the most bizarre things is that if your life is not moving in the right direction, you really need to think about whether you, you need to stop making decisions. Because if you're bad at making decisions, and this is what, what I was, I didn't know how decisions, I didn't know what a good decision was. I tried to make them, but I didn't understand anything. Mm -hmm. And so like, it's like I'm underperforming the market because wow. I'm in control. Yeah, you're worse than just an index fund. You're actively picking bad Yeah, you're decisions. actively making bad choices in your life. I love the framing on that concept because as I think about it, I see this manifested in so many different traditions, albeit phrased in different ways, right? In a spiritual perspective, mindfulness, people say live in the moment in a way that's trying to have you focus less on the future and the decision you need to make and just sort of going with it or right in Christianity, right? There's a little bit of an apocryphal saying, Jesus, take the wheel, right? His idea that I'm going to believe in something and let decisions be made in me because maybe as humanity, we kind of know that this can be better, but we find all these different ways to like almost frame it to justify, like, it's okay. Like live in the moment, like believe in God, like believe in yourself. In a way, they're all just attempts of saying, maybe don't make the decision you were going to make and just sort of let what happen happens. Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at that from a scientific perspective, I think we're sort of discovering that there's power in surrender. Right, so that there's, if you kind of think about your ego is what make deci makes decisions and sometimes your ego is biased and so will make bad decisions. And so th there's this idea of like surrender, which is like you kind of let go. And it's definitely good from like a psychological perspective because when you surrender, like, like you were saying, you know, when you, you did poorly, the outcomes of your life were tied to your self-worth. Yes, it was a reflection on me. Exactly, so the, then your ego and your performance become tied. And so what surrender does is that actually separates those two things. And a lot of people are wondering, how can I not have my ego tied to performance? What you really need to do is surrender. You need to recognize that I can study really hard or I can prepare for a job interview, but I can't get a job. I can ask someone out on a date, but I can't find a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Like you can't do that mm. technically.
You can try. And then what happens is when people focus on the outcome, right? Like, oh, I asked this person out and I got rejected. And then you feel bad. That once again is an outcome that ties to your sense of identity and sense of self-worth. Then that is problematic because now you feel bad. Now it's hard to ask out the other person. Then you can kind of get into this self-sabotaging cycle where once you feel bad about yourself, that lack of faith in yourself will actually drastically affect your performance. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of like the opposite of the placebo effect where if you believe something will work, it's more likely to work. Yeah. And if you be don't believe in yourself, you will actually do worse. I remember too, in philosophy, Nietzsche described the ultimate place for a person to be at is to have the mindset of a baby because he didn't describe it as such, but listening to you now, it's in a weird way, a place of surrender where a baby's not thinking about, this is what I should be doing and I want to do it, or this is what I should be doing and I'm deciding not to do it. It's just, I'm gonna do this because the thought enters their mind and they're just surrendering to it and they kind of just do it. I'm curious for yourself, you've woken up in the morning, you're seeing rows of people puking. <laughs> so at what point, does the mindset around surrender really start to grow within you? Like what happens next after you wake up and you see these people in a weird place you don't know, doing things you don't understand? The next two weeks were probably the hardest weeks of my life. I'm trying to think about if I've been, I was in a military school for a little while, but I, I think these were probably the worst. I mean, I was very alone, very isolated. I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't like the food. I felt like vomiting every day. Um, didn't like the weather, couldn't speak the language, you know. It, so you didn't speak the language too of, so you don't yeah, even so know Yeah, so some people there spoke English, but it was a part of India where it's, it's a completely wow. different language. Even the root language is very different. You're completely like alone. Yeah, so it was the most alone I'd ever felt. So I remember like, and they also like, they had a phone booth. So you had to like, you had to use a phone booth to make calls and I had a calling card and, you know, it's just really a different time. And so I remember like, talking to my parents and every time I talked to them, I would cry before I talked to them and I would cry after I talked to them, but I would not cry on the phone call. And every day I remember like asking them, Hey, like, can y'all send me a ticket? I want to come home. I want to come home. I want to like, that was the thought in my mind. And all I really fought was sharing that thought like over the course of that phone call. Like yeah. I'm not going to quit today. So at the beginning it wasn't about surrender. Actually, it was about, I just don't want to quit today. Like, so there was a part of me that didn't want to quit. And then I started actually appreciating it. And then I started paying attention. And then I learned about the power of surrender and just how it changes the ego, how, and that's what I really loved about sort of like studying to become a monk is it was very like scientific mm. in the sense that they were not, it wasn't about belief or whatever. Like my teachers were like, okay, like here's what we think the mind is. Here's what we think you are. So go and experiment, right? So try to understand where your desires come from. What is the ego? And they'd kind of teach it to me, right? So they'd, they'd say that the attributes of the ego are that it's comparative. So anytime you make a comparison to another person, that is actually coming from your ego. And so you go and you test it. You tell us if this is correct or incorrect. And it turned out that they were right like 99% of the time. So it's very grounded in not, hey, it's how you feel and this like vibes. It's very like, no, like this is our understanding of the mind and the world and the changes you need to introduce to yourself to improve. It's less woo woo. And it's more like, they're like, well, your mind, like it suffers because it tries to compare to other things. Like 
I guess I didn't expect that, honestly. Yeah, so I, I would say, I mean, even even some of the assumptions that were, I laughed because some of the things that you said, so it, this is how you improve. I, I think even that is a, the, the goal was never improvement. They don't care about improvement. They mm. were not trying to get me to improve. You're right, because my framing in itself focused on outcome. Absolutely, right? So, so and, and they were like, we, we don't care about you improving. <laughs> you know, they're, they're just like, if you want to learn how you work, will teach you. That's one of the weirdest bits of doublethink that I've spent a lot of recent years considering. The way to improve is to focus less on outcome. And in a way, I'm like, well, I want to focus more on surrender, on being the moment, on trusting myself and punishing myself less. And weirdly, part of me is like, and if I do that, I'll be more effective as an entrepreneur. Oh, absolutely. So, so there's, there's a whole camp of people who are like addicted to self-improvement and They'll use like surrender as a self-improvement goal, right? Yeah. So, so they're like, in instead of truly surrendering and accepting themselves, they're like, okay, if I want to become a, a big someone one day, I need to learn surrender so that I can control my life. It, right, it's right? like feigned surrender. Yeah. So, so it, one of my teachers said that, you know, in, in ashrams, there are two kinds of people. There are people with ego. And there are the people who have the ego of having no ego, right? Like, look at, look at how humble I look am. Look how much I don't care about yeah. what you think about me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm so spiritual. I'm so great. Yeah. You know, I'm so humble. I'm so much more humble than you. I kind of love, it's almost like I read in my head, I was just a perversion of the actual concept behind surrender. It's like the Pascal's wager version of well, I guess it might make me more effective, so I should try this. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's a lot. I mean, so I was doing Pascal's Wager when I went to India. Damned if you do, damned if you yeah, do. Yeah, you're like, I might as well And And so, I mean, I think that's the place that I started. But, you know, the other thing that you had kind of mentioned is, like, it's not about your feelings or emotions or whatever. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is that meditation is one of the very few treatments that we have that is effective for all mental illness. Mm. Um, probably psychotherapy is the second one that is r roughly effective. And the interesting thing is I was wondering scientifically, like, why is that? Yeah. And I think the basic reason is because meditation transcends mind altogether. And if we look at like where psychological suffering and mental illness comes from, it comes from within the mind. These are all problems in the mind. So if you can bypass mind entirely, you're going to get rid of, it doesn't matter. So the yogis don't really care what you think or what you feel. What they care about is that you are thinking and that you are feeling. And you should be able to control those two things and understand those two things. And the content of your feelings is relatively irrelevant to a yogi. It's kind of weird. So it, it, we focus on fixing the mind in Western medicine and what they're interested in is like getting rid of the whole thing because it gets in the way. It reminds me this old chestnut I learned in school, which was, uh, you know, we'll never really truly understand the mind and the brain because if it were simple enough to understand, we wouldn't be smart enough to actually understand it. If our brains were powerful enough, they'd also be too complicated for us to fathom. If they were simple enough, we wouldn't have the brain power to actually understand them. And I kind of think of this little chestnut because it's such a, now I realize, Western framing around like the mind is this thing to be studied and analyzed and poked and prodded. And like we're using our minds to study the mind and I'm hearing you describe, well, the, the yogi's kind of like, what, what, the, what the f*** are you guys doing? Just like... Yeah, I'm confused. What, if, it's, if it's very simple, why is it that we can't understand it? Because theoretically, our brains... And there's a little bit of logical fallacy here. But the thing is, if our brains are simple enough to understand, 
they're also oh they're too not simple. They're exactly. not powerful enough instruments to be able to understand the exactly, mind. and thus we are damned to never truly understand ourselves. Okay, so e either the brain is a powerful instrument, in which case understanding it requires a ton of complexity and a high computing power, or we're a very, very simple instrument, and then we don't have the wherewithal to even understand a simple instrument. Exactly. Basically what some senior thesis students in psychology would joke about when they're like, yeah, we'll never really understand ourselves. Yeah, so I, I think that's where, I don't know, I mean, like, I do a, a lecture for like nine-year-olds that teaches them how their mind works, and it works really, really well. The big difference is that if you look at the West, it's theoretical. Right? So what happens is you have people who are writing these texts. So it's external observations of the mind. But the yogis are subjective. So their sample size is mm -hmm. one. And they're just looking at what their thoughts, you know, what they see. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like the, the view of the yogi is actually a lot more transferable to teaching someone how to use their mind instead of developing complex theories. Yes. So I think it's more functional. It doesn't necessarily make it more right. I, I happen to think it's more correct. But Recall in the early days of psychology, there was a lot of theory around Henry James and introspection, right? Actually, similar to what you said with the yogis, I can understand the mind just by understanding myself. And I think due to your point on Western medicine, right, needing to have trials across many people and have things that are replicable and measurable, it really shifted away from that into very much the opposite direction, right? And now I think back to this chestnut I described to you, and it's like, well, if the only way you frame understanding the mind is through... Now I know when I poke and prod it in this way, across 5 million people, this output will come out, then yeah, maybe we're not going to understand it. But you're describing a class to nine-year-olds, there's obviously an intuitive understanding of how we think, and they're able to understand themselves better that way. Absolutely. And I, I think for that chestnut, I just don't agree with it. It's kind of saying, okay, like, if my body is very heavy, then I'm going to need big muscles to move it. And if I need big muscles to move it, that means it's going to be too heavy to move. Whereas if you really look at nature, actually, it's what you're describing is almost never in existence. In fact, what you usually see in existence is what works, which is yes. that our, our muscles are, even though they're less than the total weight of our body, they're able to generate enough force to move our body, which is kind of weird if you think about it, but that's just how the body works. I kind of love it too, because... I heard this joke a lot when I was at Harvard, and I actually think it taps into this little bit of a despairing, like the mind is so complicated and we will never truly understand it. And I think that framing changes even the work we would do to study it versus I'm hearing like, you're in India, and they're like, no, actually you can better understand yourself. I mean, I, I don't think that the mind is actually that complicated. I think yeah. we just... The way that we've been studying it, the reason it's so complicated is because the way that we've been studying it is with poor instruments. Mm. So the basic problem in Western science is that we're really good at understanding the heart because we can like take a look at it. We can like do an ultrasound. Mm. We can like do perfusion analysis. We can do all kinds of stuff. But we just have very poor instruments for the mind. And so then what happens is if you think about like, okay, if I want to accurately represent something in reality, but I can't see it, I can't touch it, I can't smell it, I can't taste it, I can't hear it what I'm gonna end up with is very poor. And so what's happened in Western science is a couple of things. One is that our ability to look at the mind is poor. But if you think about it subjectively, you can understand your thoughts mm -hmm. better than any instrument or any other human being on the planet. In fact, it is impossible for a human or a scientific instrument to detect a single thought. So if you think about like, how are we trying to understand the mind when we can't even, we can't even look at it? Yeah. 
And so then what ends up happening is we, Western science did an amazing job because even being completely colorblind, we detected color. So then we looked at outcomes and we looked at populations and we started to look at like a thousand people and we started to see, okay, like what on average works for people. Mm. And that's how Western psychiatry psychology has evolved. And there's a lot of value to it, right? So the good thing that we're, the thing we're good at is predicting what people will do. So even though we don't know how thoughts really work, we do know that if someone is addicted to a substance and if we yes. take a thousand people who are addicted and we talk to them in this way, 500 of them will be sober within one year, let's say. Mm. So that, that's the kind of stuff that we're really good at. And it's that predictive function I feel is always focused on by technologists in Western society today. I mean, even AI, it's built on this premise of predictive. Hey, this neural model we've built, does it really have a mind? I don't know, but it's trained on seeing when people say this, they tend to say this next. And when chained together, seems to approximate a human being that we're talking to. And I mentioned this because in some ways you're describing this more Eastern tradition around, well, maybe we don't need to understand everything as predictive chains of output. It's more focused on the internal. I didn't really solidify it until I actually went to med school. And what happened in med school is that they were teaching us how the mind works as if it was scientific fact. My whole problem was that I had this whole other theory of mind that I had learned before. Within two months, I understood that I had stumbled upon a type of knowledge that was unavailable in the West that I fell in love with. And so that was, it was just different. So I was like, wait, that's not, yeah. y'all are making this assumption that the unconsciousness does this or this or this. That's not actually the case, I think. I mean, there's this alternate theory that puts things together in a different way. And so that was when I really realized, okay, this, this whole system is like different. And even today, I, and so I think there's a lot of good nuggets. And this is why if you look at the evolution of psychotherapy, so there's kind of like this third wave of psychotherapy. The first wave of psychotherapy was like psychoanalysis, mm. Freud, Jung, and then you had the behaviorists, people like Aaron Beck came up with like cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. And they're like, okay, like we can look at thoughts and emotions and behaviors. And now we have this third wave, which is like mindfulness based. And so what's happening is you've got a, a group of psychologists or psychiatrists, therapists who will learn spiritual practice for themselves. And they're like, wow, this is adding something that me who is a professional therapist I'm getting value out of this beyond what therapy can provide. And then they come back and they, they incorporate it into a psychotherapy wow. practice. So I, I would say that like, you know, I knew right away that there was something good, but it took me years. And even today, I'm still discovering value that I did not know was there. At what point too, because part of the initial premise of the Pascal's Wager, why you were willing to surrender and go in the first place was, gosh, this video game addiction. At what point did you feel that begin to change? Uh, so I think in India was when I first started to get some control over myself. And then I think, uh, I mean, there's still lurking of a video game. Actually, over the last five years, it's changed. But so I think I'm kind of clean for good, sort of. But I mean, for many years after that, it's not like I went to India and then my GPA jumped to a 4.0. It's just I didn't fail all my classes the year after. Mm. And then... You know, when I got into med school is really when I started being a good student, I guess you could say. And um, what prompted you alluded to at the beginning, part of the reason why you entered med school is because you met your partner <laughs> who is like, I don't really know if I want to marry a yogi but, or a monk, but a neurosurgeon. And what was, again, it's so interesting because growing up in a Western tradition, right, trying to exert control, punishing yourself, 
falling into some phenomenon around your own habits you don't understand, surrendering, believing this Eastern tradition, and then to come back to a Western medical tradition, and of course, having a theory of mind different from what was being taught and figuring out, well, there are parts of this that align and parts of that don't. What was that decision like even going back to medical school? Was it because in some ways, fulfilling that original 15-year-old promise to be a doctor or different? No, completely different. So so really, I mean, I, I joke about my wife, but but the a big reason for it is, so I tried to take my vows at the age of 21. And then I went to my teachers and I said, I'm ready to give up my life. And they said, what do you mean give up your life? I said, I'm ready to give up my life. And they're like, you don't have a life worth giving up. You haven't done anything. You're just a failure. And so they said, go back home, get a doctoral degree if you're 30 years old and, and get to the height of your profession. Then when you're at the top, of your game, then you should give it up because you're not giving up anything. So I was like, okay. So then I, I set a goal and I said, okay, like what's the hardest, what's the hardest doctoral degree to get? It's a medical degree, just if you look at acceptance numbers and things like that. And so I was like, okay, I'm gonna try to be the best doctor that I can and then I'm gonna give it up. So the, the irony was that I didn't actually care about going to Harvard, like I didn't care. Uh, you know, I had a 2.5 GPA. I, I started at Tufts University School of Medicine and then matched to Harvard for psychiatry residency. Um, and, and even like, this is kind of embarrassing, but I won an award for academic, academic achievement at, at Tufts. So I was like at the top of my class in some ways. And I didn't even go to the ceremony because I didn't think, I didn't even look at my grades for like four years. Like I didn't, and so I just didn't show up because I didn't, I didn't care, you know, I didn't care. Um, and so it was really about doing the work. And, and this yeah. is where like, you know, we were talking about outcome and stuff like that. And so the big irony is like after giving up my desire and, and that's, that's what the yogis teach you, right? Is like give up your desire and the whole world is yours. And that's just really bizarre. Yeah. And we've seen this also like with content creation where I think a lot of times, you know, content creators will try to make a viral video, mm. but you can't, you can't chase the outcome and get the outcome. Now you can absolutely like learn from data and analysis and stuff like that. But what we've kind of found is the same principle applies for like content creation, which is that being in the right frame of mind and like having your target, not in an outcome, but really connected with like what you love about content is what makes things go viral. Even in, in our, on our content creator coaching program, we sort of like have all this baked in. So there's like science and stuff, but there's also like this Eastern influence, which is like, it's hard to separate from who we are. And so we kind of teach that to people, this idea of surrender, right? You can't make a video successful. All you can do is like try to make the best content that you can and the rest of it, like the internet is fickle and its attention changes. And a lot of content creators get paralyzed by that. They're like, oh my God, like I'm gonna become irrelevant or this person is doing this thing. They're starting to encroach on my territory. And the, all this stuff stresses them out gets them further away from what makes good content. It reminds me actually, when I went through Y Combinator for Startup Founders, one of the jokes was, oh, how do you build the perfect company? And the answer was, make yourself perfect first and do what comes naturally. Part of that aligns with what you're saying, where it very much is a framing around, you can ironically do the work that might perform best from an outside perspective if you're not chasing it. And then part of it was still this sort of faux surrender where it's like, Hey, you want to raise millions of dollars for your startup? Like this is how to do it. Yeah. I, th I think that's, it's that faux surrender. I mean, I think even if you look at, this is true of so many other parts of life. So if you look like dating, right? So if you want to find a healthy relationship, learn to love yourself first. Don't even go necessarily looking for, I wasn't looking for a relationship. So I, I had a disaster of relationships for a period of three years. 
and then just one bad after another and then decided to become a monk and then like met my wife. Right. Cause then I was like, I was free of all the pressure of what do I say? Does this person like me? Not like, me? like Hey, I'm going to be a monk. So yeah, I'm just going to, I'm, I'm going to meet this person. I'm going to, I asked her out on a date. Apparently she insisted it was a date. I still don't think it was a date. I was just like, Hey, you want to grab food sometime? And because there was actually no intention in your mind of necessarily turning that into something romantic. Nope. In fact, quite the opposite. I was like, this is not going to become romantic. This is not going to become romantic. I also love this concept too of you literally age 21 went to your mentors and you're like, I am ready to give up my life. And they basically roasted you and said, your life ain't worth shit. Oh yeah. Come back and develop a full life. Get the best doctorate you can and yeah. then come back and sacrifice it. And now you've gotten the degrees, you have an amazing wife You've helped so many people via your work and creation and evangelism. Will you go back to India and now give it up now that there is meaning and worth? I gave it up a long time ago. So, so this is the other big lesson, which my teachers were fantastic, is giving up, like, giving up and wearing robes is about ego, right? Like, look at me. I've given up. I've become monk. And now I wear these, these maras. Instead of wearing jewelry and, and gold and wearing all of these things, I'm going to show you how spiritual I am. Can't you see from all the prayer beads and robes and all of these things that I'm spiritual? See? So the whole point is that if you look at like spirituality, it's nothing about external behavior. It is all about internal. It's all internal. That's why you can sit and you can be in a cave in the Himalayas. Whereas my teacher's like hanging out for 20 years. Like, what are they doing all day? It has nothing to do with the actions. It has everything to do with the war that you're fighting within. So the other thing that I realized is I don't have to become a monk to be a monk. Monk is an attitude. It's about how you live your life. It's about what kind of internal practices you do. And you don't have to wear the robes. You've now built a life that you have something to turn to and say, I'm giving up the pursuit of this validation and outcome. I'm so intrigued. So what, what? do you think about now when you have moved past the desire for outcome-driven validation? I would say I think about what I'm supposed to do. So, so a big part of my compass now, so then like, okay, if you're not chasing outcome-driven validation, then what do you chase? Right? So the first thing is I don't chase much. So I, I'll kind of like go kind of day to day. I mean, I think there's a purpose for strategic planning and thinking about the future, but you can kind of strategically plan in the way that you would for a video game. And like, like I'll map out like what my RPG party is going to look like and what it's going to do on turn 100, but I don't have to be personally invested in it. So you can make good strategic decisions yeah. without your self-worth or your happiness being tied into whether things go do well or poorly. And that's also like, I know it sounds kind of crazy, but this is like what we try to teach other human beings is that you can sort of think about the future without caring about the future. You can just sort of, and it's beautiful because then you sort of think about it as long as you need to. Okay, I'm gonna sit down, I'm gonna map this out for 45 minutes instead of like churning it over in my mind for an hour. You just think about what you need to for the future, you kind of get yeah. it done, and then you go on with your day. It's like, here's something I like to accomplish, right? And here's the plan I need to set up with it, but this accomplishment that I want, it's not coming, you know, I'd like to accomplish this, but it's not coming from a place of personal investment and ego. It's just, well, okay, if I want to accomplish this, this idea, it's like following a recipe, like, okay, let's like put this in place and let's go and accomplish. Yeah. Two questions. First, your wife, is she also a monk? Like, has she also given that up in her head? Because in my no, mind- No, not, not at all. And that intrigues me because the two of you are partners. Yeah. And so she clearly part of her understands and connects with that, but she herself is different. So she's also quite a spiritual person. 
but she comes from a different um, spiritual tradition, yeah, which is like not the one of like surrender and giving up worldly mm. things, but actually about shakti or the accumulation of energy. And so in her mind, like, you know, life is, I, I, I don't know how to say this, but it, it works out. So she's not, she hasn't given up life, but I think that there's also a, I know it sounds kind of weird, but whether you've given up life or you haven't given up yeah. life, life is the same, right? So you can be a monk and when you take a piss or you can be like someone who hates yourself because you're not at the top still of your class and you still take a piss the same. The general experience of life is the same. The only big difference is like what's up here, right? So it's the attitude that you take with like, oh my God, like I need to be pissing more or pissing less. Like that's the whole point is that it's all kind of silly. And at the end of the day, you wake up every day, you know, you're going to eat something. Yeah. There's some amount of pleasure there, but like you don't have to maximize that pleasure because if you eat something that's really, really pleasurable, then you're going to feel guilty. And so there's like all kinds of stuff and it just kind of works out. And it, it's that. sort of like, because it's internal, right? So I can do what, yeah, when you started commenting, so I was like, oh, like, have you gone and given it up? And your answer was like, yeah, do I need to be wearing like flashy monk robes and walking around? Yeah. And I am now a monk. I was like, oh, wow, that's incredible. It's a mindset. Absolutely. I mean, and that's what the monks have too. It's it's a mindset, right? So you can be wearing whatever you want to. You can be doing whatever you want to. There's even like a, um, a group of monks called Agori Babas. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're monks that get high, eat meat will actually practice cannibalism sometimes. And so they do like all these things that monks are not supposed to do. And their whole point is like, okay, this is, it's part of their spiritual practice because they try to develop unwaveringness mm. in the face of that. So I'm not going to be revolted or fall in love with marijuana or mm -hmm. meat. So I, I need to be like internally tranquil no matter whether I'm getting high or I'm eating meat. Mm. And so they, it's just part of their spiritual I practice. Understand. My last question for you then, is in that vein of, as you mentioned, hey, if you've got to defeat this raid level boss, you'll strategize and plan with the RPG party and who you want it in the mix of skills. What are the goals for you now? Understanding it's not necessarily personal ego invested in them, but what are the things you want to accomplish? So I think it is my karmic duty to help people. So one thing that I recognized some time ago um, is, you know, learning about karma and all this kind of stuff that I have a very unique background. So I think I was given a gift that very few people in life have been given. So could study for seven years for a monk and then like got to train at Harvard Medical School. That's pretty cool. So then the question becomes, what am I supposed to do with that? Right. So with this like spawn that I have and also like a big part of that is like suffering to some degree, like screwing up my life, like really like having a screwed up life. Yeah for no reason other than myself, right? So like I had every advantage and I still threw it. And, and even that I think is a very formative part. I think it's just as important as let's say Harvard Medical School. Um, Cause I really know what it is to, to really just f up your life and not be able to blame anyone else. And so what am I supposed to do with that? So I could use that for personal gain and you mentioned why Combinator. So for a while I was working, I still do this work sometimes, but I was working with a lot of like startups and like very successful startups and C-suite kind of level work and this kind of stuff, which is cool. I, I enjoy the work. I still enjoy the work to this day and I still do it some, but you know, back then it was sort of like, okay, like this is cool because I'm a somebody now. And so if you're a somebody, you get to work with other somebodies. And now it's like, okay, but that's why I started streaming on Twitch. It was sort of like, I can work with these people, the important people in life, um, or I can like work with people who need help and, and for whom there are not 
a pile of people waiting to like work with C-suite. There's all kinds of performance psychologists and coaches and executive mm -hmm. coaches and all this kind of stuff. We'll work with C-suite executives at billion dollar companies. But there's like not a line of people trying to help 22 year old kids who are playing too many video games. And so that's kind of what I'm here for. I've got a limited amount of time on this earth and like I'm gonna die one day and then all my pleasure or everything that I've accomplished is gonna be gone. So it's like on a given day, what am I going to do today? I can chase pleasure, you know, or I can like gratify my ego or whatever, or I can like help another human being. Cool thing is that it's not even like mutually exclusive because like as I followed this path, like, dude, I'm working today mm -hmm. and like, look at where we are. It's a Monday afternoon. I'm in beautiful Los Angeles, California, having a conversation with a friend of mine about life. Yeah. And this is what qualifies as my job. <laughs> You're going to give me something delicious to drink in a few minutes. Right. And like, this is work. And so I think the really crazy thing that I've learned is that seeking pleasure in life is not necessarily the way to get it. That actually like trying to build something really good that makes the world a better place because the world is so full of people who are cynical, selfish, whatever. You're actually like a decent human being and you try to help people. Yeah. It seems that people respect that. Mm. And that's what we set out. I mean, we didn't set out to be big on Twitch. We just, I always thought I was going to be small because no one's ever done this before. Yeah. And then we got a nomination at the streamies because apparently that's worth something. So the that. craziest thing is you can kind of have your cake and eat it too. All you have to do is not want the cake in the first place. And you can't not want the cake in secret hopes that it'll help you get the cake. You have exactly. to be able to truly not yeah. want the cake. Truly just let, let life take you where it takes you. And on a, on a day to day basis, just make your, your best choices that you can be a little bit forgiving. If you fall short, I mean, there are days that, you know, there were like eight days that I didn't make a single YouTube video. And that was hard. It was hard on my team. It was hard on me. It was hard on everybody. Right. Cause I'm supposed to be making, I just didn't have it in me. I kind of just accepted that. And then thankfully on day nine, I woke up and then, you know, I, I made a ton of videos over the course of the next week. Wow. And so to really like give yourself the space to like create and sort of foster that creative energy and then things will work out well. I love that. Dr. K, thanks so much for, wow, that was a lot. I've learned personally <laughs> that I'm sort of thinking about, so thank you so much for making time. I, I really enjoyed this. Yeah. Too. Thanks for having me, Eric. Good yeah. luck, man. Uh, that, was, uh, that was fantastic. Our first date lasted 12 hours. I, I, I still don't think it was a date for the record. So I, I just so you took did her because you didn't have that intention. Yeah. So I just, we just went to lunch. I was like, do you, I think I asked her, do you eat? <laughs> and she said, yes. And, and so then I asked her, you know, like, what kind of food do you like? Let's go grab some food. And she said, okay. So we met up for lunch and then we just hung out for like the whole day. Wow. And even, I mean, I, I could feel myself, you know, falling in love, I guess is what you would call it. But even then I didn't think we were dating for a while. I thought we were just hanging out. Yeah. Because love isn't necessarily romantic. There are many different types of love. Oh, I mean, the love that I was feeling was probably romantic. Okay. It was romantic. <laughs> that makes sense. That, that, that's, yeah.